by way of introducing uh, Robert, uh, I had uh, Danny Hillis on our board, wrote me a note. He said he had met Robert and said his, the science that he's working on is really interesting. Uh, and that piqued my interest. And then probably two other people sent me separate notes. And I was like, all right, well, I got to go figure this out. And, and generally, when someone said they're freezing brains, I'm like, I'm not paying attention to that. And so, but this one, I was like, okay, well, enough people I trust are telling me to pay attention. And so um, I made an appointment um, and, we, and I went down and uh, he walked me through the experience experiments he was doing, and, and I was really blown away, and I think both by the, um, the work that he's doing and his background, as well as the, um, the implications of it, which I know that we're going to want to talk a lot about um, tonight. Um, so um, with that, welcome Robert McIntyre. The conversations at the interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that's working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, I salute you all for being here tonight, and uh, I'm very excited to speak with some people who uh, think about the long term. Uh, <clears throat> so um, I consider myself an archivist, and what I work on archiving is human memories. And so we'll get into the technical details shortly, but I want to spend a little bit of time first saying, why do we care about archiving memories? Um, and for me personally, the reason that I care about this comes from how I view history. So uh, I see human history as being divided into different stages, and we advance from one stage to another uh, by the invention of technologies that are better able to preserve information from one generation to another. And every time we invent a new technology that can preserve information, it radically catapults our society to new heights. So, you know, originally we have no language, we have no writing. Um, it's more of an intuitive or animal era of history. So imagine that you're, you never learn how to speak, like your parents never teach you because they don't know how to speak. Um, imagine how that would feel, that you have these thoughts in your head that aren't even in language because you've never learned to think in those terms, and they're trapped, you can't communicate them. All you have to go on is your instincts that you're born with, and your personal experience that you accumulate through your life. Um, that's just a totally different existence that's, that's probably so different it's almost impossible to even imagine what it would be like. Um, at least for me, I think in terms of language, it's hard to even know what it would be like to never have a word your entire life. Um, and I would say this is more of an animal mode of history, but then we invented language. And so language is a technology that's able to preserve information from one generation to another. Now, instead of having your thoughts trapped in your head, you can talk to someone else. So you can hear stories from your ancestors. You can hear what people seven generations ago were talking about. You can hear about imaginary things. And so the invention of language catapulted us to the era of oral history. And that's the difference between us being animals and the difference between us being able to conquer a large part of the world. Um, so, you know, it's a huge advance. But just language alone and having an oral civilization um, is very limited in a lot of respects because you are limited to what you can actually remember, uh, which is very low bandwidth. So the next technology that we invented uh, to preserve information is writing, uh, which we use writing so much it's, it's hard to remember just how magical it is. But if someone, you know, imagine that we didn't have writing before and someone said these words that I'm speaking that are ephemeral, they're gone as soon as they're said we're gonna figure out a way to carve them into stone and they're gonna last longer than a person can live. You'd say, well, you don't understand what words are, like that that's insane, that's impossible. Um, how can you make an arbitrary symbol mean uh, a sound, right? And in fact, we didn't invent language all at once. We invented partial scripts that were um, dealing with mathematics, dealing with numbers of things. And then it took a while for people to figure out, oh, you could say anything and write it down. Uh, so if you have language and you have writing, then you have the era of written history, and that's the era that we're in right now. Uh, and it's 
hugely beneficial. You're able to have libraries full of things that no one person could have in their head all at once. Um, and that's what's powered our modern civilization. But writing is still missing a lot of things. You know, consider what the difference is between living through a war and reading about that war in a history textbook. I would argue the majority of the value of that firsthand experience is actually lost when it's written down. Certainly it's better than not having uh, writing at all, but you lose quite a bit. I'd say we lose most of the important bits. In particular, we lose the wisdom that we generate. Um, it's not because wisdom is magic, it's just wisdom has such a high dimensionality to it that it can't be linearized and written down in a form and then read back. It's very hard to learn wisdom by reading. You sort of have to live it and crystallize your life experience. So if I was going to predict what the next information preservation technology is going to be, um, it would be the ability to capture the things that writing doesn't capture. Wisdom, first-hand experience, these sorts of things. And I think the invention of such technology will catapult us into a new era of history called the era of living history. The difference being, if you're in the era of living history, you can talk to someone who was alive and actually had first-hand experience of it. So that's the question I'm trying to answer. How can we preserve living memory? Uh, <clears throat> and by the end of this talk, uh, my promise to you is that we'll have gone over these four pieces and you'll see how they fit together to achieve what I think it's possible today to actually preserve living memory. Um, and it's got four parts. It's got information theory, clinical science, neuroscience, and the technology of preservation. So we'll go through each of these four parts quickly. Um, <clears throat> and information theory, we're going to learn about what it means to preserve things um, in a little bit more of a rigorous way. We've all got an intuitive understanding of what preservation is, um, and we're going to learn how to think about it a little bit more rigorously and how to think about it um, for things that you might not fully understand, like DNA or uh, books written in a language that you can't read. What does it mean to preserve those things? How can you know whether you preserve those things? Um, by the end of this talk, you have a better idea of that. Um, we'll talk about some of the clinical science, which I find uh, very fascinating, and we'll cover uh, a surgical technique that I think is the most dramatic surgical technique in the world that most people haven't heard about. Uh, we'll go through the neuroscience, we'll briefly cover the science of memory consolidation, what our current top theories are for how memories are actually created in the brain. Um, and then we'll round it up by talking about uh, embalming technologies and talking about chemical preservation methods and uh, how they're tied to spices, which you might get a new appreciation for. Um, so let's start with information theory. So uh, we got the eye on the bottom, that's kind of a checklist through the talk. Uh, what does it mean to preserve something? All right. Uh, well, we've all got an idea of what it means to preserve something. Those books right over there are currently doing a fine job of preserving the stories that's contained within them. Um, but I'd like to explore this intuition with you for a little bit. Um, and so let's play the preservation game. I'm going to say some things we could do to these books. And uh, you raise your hand if you think that it would preserve the information of the stories that are in the book in intuitively. All right. So raise your hand if you think the information is preserved. Here's the first one. We'll just leave them on the shelves for one day, and then we'll look at them tomorrow. How many do you think that would preserve the information in the books? And raise your hand if you think that it would. So you don't think that that would preserve the information. Why is that? For one day. For one day. So tomorrow, the, those books won't have their information? No, no, no. I mean, will the information still be there tomorrow? Uh, yeah, yeah, raise your hand. Okay, so if we, if we do it to them, does it, another way of thinking, if we do this to the books, does it destroy the information in them? Okay, so leaving them for a day, uh, we all understand intuitively that that's not going to do anything to the information that's, that's stored in them. Okay, so number two, we're going to burn them and scatter their ashes to the wind so no one will ever see them again. How many of you think that will preserve uh, the information in the books? No one thinks that will preserve, no one believes that the books somehow live on, maybe. Okay, no, okay. Um, <clears throat> all right, let's say that we, we do burn them, but we buy new copies of the books and we put them in where they were before and they've got the same letters in them as the original books. How many think that operation preserves the information in the library? Yeah, all right, all right. Not too much sentimentality in this crowd, okay. Um, <laughs> we're gonna do row 13. Now, what is row 13? It's a simple form of encryption. So you take your letter, you move it 13 spaces forward, you wrap around if you run out of spaces. So if you take the interval, it becomes Gervargini, okay? If you take Gervargini, what does that become? What do you think? The interval, right, because it's reversible. So let's say we were to wrote 13 all the text in all the books. Does that preserve the information or not? 
Everyone, you don't think it preserves the information? What do you think? What's that? I mean, it goes Yeah, if you wrote 13 something that's already been wrote 13, it undoes it and you get the text back. Yeah, so it's reversible, so it's got to kind of preserve it because it seems weird to say the information's gone when you can do something to it and get it back. Well, it clearly wasn't gone if you can get it back, right? Okay, now let's say we mixed up some clear epoxy and we poured it on all of the books, okay? And that epoxy is going to soak into all of the pages and it's going to glue the pages together and it's going to render the book into a solid form of plastic, okay? And you'll never be able to open the book again. But the epoxy doesn't make the ink uh, smudge at all. It doesn't make the ink run. In fact, it glues the ink even harder to the page than it was before. Um, do you think if we were to epoxy all the books over there that that would preserve the information contained in them? Well, does the information does the information being preserved depend on the existence of a technology or not? Does the information become preserved after you invent the technology, or was it always preserved even before you invent the technology? Exactly. But it would have been preserved irrespective of the technology that exists, right? It doesn't retroactively make it be preserved because you invented a way to scan it. Okay. So, all right, great. So what's the principle here? What's the common uh, principle behind our intuition? Why do we think the burning destroys the information? Why do we think that the epoxy preserves the information even though you can't open it, right? Why do we think the encryption preserves it? Well, uh, for that, we need to turn to information theory, very light information theory, and the concept of an injective function. All right, so injective function is the one on the left. Non-injective function is the one on the right. What's the difference between these two? Well, this one keeps different things different. But this one does not keep different things different. Three and four become the same thing. So in the case of burning the books, it's not injective because if you have a pile of ash, you can't tell. There's many different books that could have made that pile of ash, and you can't tell which one is which. The rote 13 is injective because you can always tell if there's two different books and you apply the preservation to them then it keeps that difference, all right? So that leads to our first gold star idea here, which is preservation means that different things stay different, okay? Um, that's what it means to preserve something. No matter how you transform it, as long as in all cases, if the things are different, you maintain those differences, you will have preserved the information. That's what it means to preserve information. Uh, and that leads us to our second idea, which is interesting, that you don't actually have to understand what you're preserving in order to preserve it. Um, for example, uh, I can't read Chinese, but I can preserve Chinese books by using the epoxy method uh, because I know that if they were different Chinese texts, that the ink would be different. And I know that the epoxy doesn't alter the ink of the pages, and so different texts will make different plastic epoxy blocks. So uh, this also applies to things like DNA. You don't, we were able to preserve DNA even though we don't know what the DNA means as long as you know that it's not going to change the letters of the DNA. Um, any questions so far? Yeah, what's up? Uh, we'll, we'll do that. We'll do that one after. You have to have boundary conditions. So we'll do, we'll do that later. Okay. Um, so we'll do light information here. Okay. So, um, moving on. So we know that if you're going to have information preservation, it means you keep different things different. Okay. Within a finite bounded volume of space and time, which is why you don't have the quantum mechanics. Okay. So now we're going to move on to clinical research. Okay. Um, and this is one of my favorite clinical surgeries, and nobody knows about this for some reason. Um, but the question is, if we could preserve brains, now we know a little bit more what that means. It means you have to keep different memory states different after you apply your preservation process. But the brain is a really complicated dynamic system. Like my brain has a lot of electricity running through it right now and a lot of chemicals running through it right now and it's alive, stuff moves in it. So you might think if you stop that movement, you stop that electricity, then well, what does that do? Does that erase the information in it or does it not matter? Um, by default, it seems like maybe the brain works like a computer in a power outage. If you turn the power off to it, you would lose the information. Um, you know, documents that are open that you haven't saved, for example. Um, and so the question is, are memories stored in electrical activity, right? The actual functioning of the brain. Uh, well, how can we figure that out? Uh, I think there's very powerful evidence that it's not uh, that comes from clinical science. So uh, back in the day, maybe, couple hundred, maybe a hundred years ago, um, 
doctors noticed that sometimes people will fall into frozen lakes. You know, they have thin ice, you fall into it, and they'll drown in the lake. They'll literally drown uh, to death in this lake. Uh, and they'll sit there for an hour, and you can fish the person out of the lake, and in the state, they have no brain activity. They have no heartbeat, there's no circulation, there's no breathing, um, there's no electroactivity in the brain, there's no electroactivity in the heart. Um, they feel cold to the touch, they really look like they're dead. Uh, and yet, in some cases, if you warm them up just right, they come back to life and they function again uh, with varying degrees of damage depending on how they drowned. So doctors noticed that this happened sometimes and they thought they could take advantage of it uh, by creating a technique called DHCA, which stands for Deep Hypothermic Circulatory Arrest. You see, there's this problem where if you need to do surgery on the blood vessels of the brain or the main aortic arch, um, we know how to do those surgeries. They're actually quite simple. The problem is the blood is flowing through these vessels. And uh, if you try to do the surgery, then you're going to have blood go everywhere. You're going to have uh, the patient die. And you basically can't do the surgery fast enough, even though you would know how to do it, to save the patient's life. Very unfortunate. These doctors noticed you could cool people down. And they said, well, what if we did that intentionally under a controlled situation so that we could make it so that the patient is cold and now their blood isn't flowing? Now you've bought, you know, they can stay under the lake for an hour. They sometimes survive that. So you got an hour to do your surgery. And then you warm them back up. And uh, maybe someone who would have died because you couldn't figure out how to physically do the surgery could instead live. So in the 60s, they invented this technique. And uh, it works quite well. So um, they did a study for professional people uh, to see if there was any change in their memories after cooling them down with this process and warming them back up. And, uh, <clears throat> The exact meaning of these is not so important. Um, it's comparing people who had DHCA versus people who did not have DHCA. And it's judged by their boss and by their family in this case. Uh, and they just sent a questionnaire. Does the person seem different in any way than they were before? Uh, and they asked the family, I don't know, does dad seem like he forgot some stuff? Um, and basically it said no. Um, so it's quite amazing but one of the uh, very rigorous principles we get from clinical science is that memories have to be durable and physical constructs, whatever they are, and they clearly survive a shutdown, a total shutdown of electroactivity. Okay, so we know we need to keep different things different. We know memories have got to be some type of physical thing. The question is, what type of physical thing are they? To that, we need to turn to neuroscience. So well, let's go for what's our current theories of how memories actually work. Um, so how does the brain create memories? Well, <clears throat> our current theory of neuroscience is this idea of memory consolidation, right? Um, and this has been created over the last 40 years with a lot of heroic efforts in molecular biology um, and neuroscience. And so we've found that memory consolidation has three components to it, essentially, three different timescales on which it operates. The first one is a minute or so, one, one second, 30 seconds, 60 seconds. Um, and that really is controlled by the electrical activity in your brain. So think you're memorizing a phone number and you're trying to dial it in. Or the exact words that I've just spoken to you kind of linger in an echo in your head for a little bit. Um, but then you mostly forget. You don't remember exactly how I introduced myself, for example. So that's the short term. And we don't really care about that too much. Uh, now you have this process that takes one to two hours that is kind of an intermediate process where there's been some changes to synapses, but the changes to those synapses are kind of liable. Uh, by default, they'll revert back to their original stage. This, by the way, is a synapse. So synapse is a connecting elements between neurons they use to communicate with each other. And synapses are quite complicated constructs, but they can change their size. Um, and they can either do that temporarily or they can do it permanently. The temporary version is this. Uh, one to two hour part. Then you've got more than two hours. And if you're going to remember something and you're able to remember it for more than two hours, it generally is encoded as a long-term memory. And it'll stay with you potentially your entire life. Um, and when we look at what happens in the brain, we see that the synapses actually physically change. They actually change their size when a memory is created. So what does that look like? Well, it looks like this. So to provide the context here, uh, these white blob things are these, right? Um, 
this is about as good as can be done with light microscopy. And what you're looking at here is an actual living neuron, a tiny part of the living neuron and the synapses that are attached to that. And you're watching learning happen here. So this synapse in particular is going to enlarge. So you see that this is before learning, and then after the learning, it's bigger. And then over the next two hours, you know, it maybe reduces in size a little bit. But compare this one to this one, and you'll see that it got bigger. Now, synapses can decrease, too. Look at this one here, and look at the corresponding one there. It's smaller. And the same thing with this one. That one's kind of small, but it barely exists here. So this happens in thousands of synapses throughout your brain, even to encode the most trivial memory if it's actually going to last for longer than two hours. One principle of the brain is that it's quite distributed. You can destroy any one synapse. It doesn't affect anything. Now, what does a synapse actually look like? Um, they're very, very complicated, all right? They're very small. Uh, your brain is about a liter of material. And a synapse is about a femtoliter of volume. So think about a trillionth of a liter, and then divide that by a thousand, and that's a femtoliter, okay? Um, and so you have a quadrillion synapses in your brain. And so they provide the scratch space that you need by changing their size to store all of your memories. And even within that femtoliter of volume, you have about 40,000 proteins and those proteins do various jobs, like moving vesicles around to release neurotransmitter, um, being the ion channels that control the strength of the synapse, um, and doing all of the housekeeping and maintenance to keep that synapse alive, um, and then also to be able to change the size. So very complicated constructs. But the main takeaway is that if you're going to create a long-term memory, you undergo the process of memory consolidation, and memory consolidation changes the size of synapses. And changing the size of synapses requires protein synthesis. We know this because if you inhibit protein synthesis, you can't consolidate memories anymore. It's actually kind of a weird effect. You can be under the effect of a protein synthesis inhibitor, and your short-term memory will work fine. That's electrical. Your medium-term memory will work fine. That's still doable because it doesn't require protein synthesis. But your ability to encode long-term memories is compromised. Uh, people have a very high alcohol tolerance can get into this mode. They call it blackout drunk. And uh, a person can be functional. They're blacked out, not because they're unconscious, but because they're not encoding memories properly. And so you can actually have crazy situations where you could write yourself a letter or you could hide something somewhere while you're under the influence of this. You wake up the next day, you can actually genuinely surprise yourself and communicate with yourself this way. So we know that you have to keep different things different if you want to preserve information. We know that memories have got to be physical because clearly they survive a shutdown. And we know that if you're going to encode a memory, you've got to change synapses. So how does that come together to preserve memories? Well, uh, that's why we have to talk about embalming. And the question clearly is, can you preserve synapses? Um, because if you could preserve synapses, you could keep different memory states different. So can we preserve synapses? Well, the answer is yes. We have long ago figured out how to preserve synapses since the 60s with a very special chemical called glutaraldehyde. Now, uh, you might recognize the name. Uh, glutaraldehyde sounds kind of like formaldehyde, right? Uh, and so, you know, formaldehyde is used in embalming. Glutaraldehyde often is too, although it's not talked about as much. Um, and the way that it works is it's like a pair of molecular handcuffs. So each of these ends on here are called aldehydes, and it's got two of them. And what it does is it can cross cellular membranes and it can grab those proteins. So all those fancy proteins right there the glutaraldehyde enters, it's much smaller than that, and it glues them together, it gels them together into a solid gel and traps them so they can't move anymore. Um, and it traps all the proteins into this gel. And so it's really quite effective at preserving uh, the structure of a synapse. If you look at the protein content before and after preservation, it's identical. Uh, and here is what I consider a tour de force uh, image from a, a very amazing paper where they did living imaging of a living neuron uh, and then they preserved it with glutaraldehyde, and they picked out exactly the part that they'd preserved, and they did electron microscopy on it. So this is what it looked like when it was alive, and you can see the synapses at the limit of what you're able to see on a living neuron. Then they looked at it with electron microscopy, and you're about to see what it looks like after it's preserved with glutaraldehyde, and image at a much higher resolution. It looks like this. And so you can see that every single synapse here is preserved, every single one of them. This looks exactly like just a higher-res version of this neuron, which is amazing. Uh, 
you know, you've got a quadrillion synapses, but if you have one chemical that can glue all the proteins that they're made of together, then it sort of doesn't matter how many synapses you have, as long as you can provide that uh, evenly to every uh, synapse. So glutaraldehyde's clearly able to preserve synapses. That's why we've been using it for half a century to preserve synapses. Uh, so these are the four pieces, right? <clears throat> you have this requirement to keep different things different, and you have the knowledge of what differences are when you create a memory, and you have an incomparable preservation technique uh, that's able to actually preserve at a much higher level of detail than is even required. If you imagine uh, two copies of yourself, right, that are exactly identical to each other in every way down to the molecule, with one exception, that one single synapse in one of the brains of the people is changed, it's erased or it's enlarged, and you imagine what glutaraldehyde preservation would do, even a difference as subtle as that would be preserved by glutaraldehyde fixation. If you imagine two organisms that had one single actual memory different, that's going to be thousands of synapses at the very least, not just one synapse. And so, of course, glutaraldehyde would be able to keep those separate as well. So I think the analogy here is with DNA. Um, <clears throat> DNA is something that we've only recently uh, scanned. So the first human genome project was in 2003, and we were able to scan the entire human genome at great expense. Uh, out of curiosity, when do you think we knew enough about DNA to preserve the DNA? Any guesses? Come on, somebody be brave. What do you think? What year do you think we knew enough about DNA that we could preserve it, not scan it? What's that? 60. Yeah, 60. So 1959, we discovered the structure of DNA. And once we discovered the structure of DNA, you can make a very straightforward chemical and thermodynamic argument that uh, liquid nitrogen can preserve DNA, alcohol can preserve DNA, all kinds of things can preserve DNA. Um, and so there were 50 years there where you, we were capable of preserving DNA, but we weren't capable of reading that DNA. But nevertheless, I think there's a compelling argument to be made that we should preserve the DNA of species that are going extinct from the 60s to now because we can eventually read the DNA. And I think we're in the same place today with neuroscience that we were with genetics in the 60s. We know enough about memory that we can confidently preserve it, but of course, it's quite difficult to actually do anything with preserved synapses because there's an awful lot of them. Uh, but nevertheless, I think that this technology is the first in a series of pipeline of technologies that will eventually lead us to a new era of history, the era of living memory. There you go. Thank you, Robert. Um, and I think that was, uh, I'm really glad you added slides to this, uh, by the way. We walked through this earlier. He did a fantastic, really fantastic job, I think, of um, getting us to kind of where we are now in this science of understanding that we can preserve memory, um, yet not necessarily understanding um, what we're going to do with that memory if we were going to do it. Um, but I wanted to get a little bit more of your background. I know that um, one of the ways into this uh, came from your work in, um, in the Brain Preservation Prize. And so I wanted to say a little bit about what you thought your insights were, um, I, it, from what I understand, it's from combining a few different sciences um, that people were too specialized to understand, but I'd love to hear you say a little bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. So I've always been interested in how you can preserve the information that's stored in the human brain. Um, and originally, I thought that that would be done through just a straight application of neuroscience. Um, and so that's kind of what I studied for in high school and what I, what I imagined I would be doing with my career. And then I realized that you know, neuroscience was making a lot of progress, but it was nowhere near at the level that it could actually read information out of a, of a human brain. And it probably wouldn't be for a generation or two. And so uh, I transitioned from that to doing AI research because I actually thought that you know, the AI would get you there faster. There's always a tension when you're trying to solve a really complicated problem between do you attack it with the tools that you have right now or do you build some better tools, even though it takes you some time, and then attack it with better tools and end up solving it faster than you would have if you just started in on it. Um, and I thought that reading information from a human brain was one of these problems that you probably need better tools to do it. Um, so 
I was doing that. But then I found this Brain Preservation Prize. So this was the first rigorous scientifically based attempt that I'd ever seen to actually preserve the information in the brain. And I found that to be very compelling because generally preserving information is a lot easier than manipulating that information or reading that information. And so there was this prize called the Brain Preservation Prize and it would be awarded to the first team that could preserve an entire mammalian brain uh, and argue they could keep it preserved for at least 100 years and verify it with electron microscopy. So I started volunteering for them. Um, and uh, in the process of volunteering for them, I just want to make a YouTube video that would like, you ever see minute physics? You like, it'd be a little cartoon that would say, here's the prize, here's the competitors for the prize, here's like what they're trying to do, here's why they haven't won it yet, here's the next steps, right? But in the process of researching that cartoon, uh, I was like, yeah, I think I could just win this prize instead. Um, and so I didn't even bother making it. I just, uh, and I just left the AI research and, and, and made something that could actually win it. Um, and so it's based on glutaraldehyde fixation, but uh, glutaraldehyde fixation is very good, but that gel isn't stable for 100 years. And so to that, I added this antifreeze approach from crab biology that allows you to convert the gel to a glass form. And the glass form is stable for 100 years, it's stable for 1,000 years, no problem. Uh, so that's kind of the journey up to now. Well, and the, I mean, I think what's, what is interesting here is that, I, you know, I mean, a thou thousands of years ago, we preserved information on stone that has lasted for thousands of years. And hundreds of years ago, we started with books, which has lasted for hundreds of years. I think it's funny that we're now preserving things in digital formats, which are questionable. They're somewhere between five years and, and uh, kind of zero, uh, depending on you know, how good you are with your backups. Well, the, the copy um, makes them forever, you know? So right. it's really quite cool. Yeah, so uh, the digital information, unlike those other things, are, have much higher copyability. Uh, I mean, what, what does it take to, in order to, like, for instance, to win that prize? So what was the, what was the level of technical and, like, I mean, how many dollars per brain do we, does it cost right now to preserve a brain down to the synaptic level? Uh, the majority of the cost would actually be long-term storage right now. The actual preservation is fairly inexpensive, um, and it's, it's a, a minor change to a process we've been using in neuroscience for 60 years. Um, but the samples have to be maintained at negative 135 degrees C, which is quite inconvenient of a temperature. Um, and so it's just expensive to do that. Um, but the annoying part of it is if you want like dry ice temperatures, minus 79 C, that's easy. We have refrigerators that will do that, or you can use dry ice. You want to go down to like minus 190 degrees C, liquid nitrogen will do it. Um, but there's no cooling agent that can do minus 135 that isn't also explosive. So uh, <laughs> you're in hydrogen, like pentane and stuff will do yeah. it. But it'll catch on fire, and that's not good. Gotcha. <laughs> um, and so the. What do you think was the, in, in winning the Braid Preservation Prize, I mean, were you, was this largely an insight of a single type of science or combining sciences and so the siloed sciences weren't getting there? Um, and by being able to combine them, that was helpful. Yeah, so there were two groups. You had a group in Germany that was working on uh, doing electron microscopy of entire brains. And so they were using the traditional glutaraldehyde fixation. And then they were trying to convert the brain to plastic um, using actual epoxy. Um, and then in the plastic form, yeah, it would be stable for 100 years, but they had a lot of trouble getting that plastic to penetrate into the brain. It's, it's quite difficult. Um, but they had no problem rapidly stabilizing the brain in a form that was good for at least a few months. Then you had the traditional cryobiology approach, which was focused more on maintaining the biological viability of the brain, kind of like with organ preservation. Um, and so uh, their problem has always been that they can't stabilize the tissue fast enough to preserve it. So you can use them both you get the long-range stability afforded by the cryoprotection, you get the short-range stabilization afforded by the fixation. Oh, what's up? You're infusing the brain or are you slicing and dicing? So the brain has a vascular system uh, to provide... Uh, the question is, are you freezing the brain or right. slicing it up? Sorry. Um, so, so the... Brain so, so fixation uh, can be done on slices, and can be done on whole uh, organisms even. Um, uh, the process is basically the same as embalming. You're using a circulatory system to deliver chemicals to every cell in the body almost instantly. The next step then is to reverse the process, right? What's that? The next step is to reverse the process. That so I, I care about, so, so the question is, well, wouldn't the next step to be to reverse this process of fixation? And I would say maybe not. Um, I care about archiving the information. And so, um, 
you know, if I was, uh, I'm almost in the position of like a museum curator. Hold, hold on yeah, a second. Yeah. We're going to get to yeah, questions yeah. in just a minute. So uh, we're going we're gonna to use a microphone so that everyone can hear them and, as well as our online audience. But um, we're, we're, yeah, so we're getting there. Don't worry. So, um, the, I mean, I think, and this, I think this fits into the question of, like, how do you, I mean, how do you see this work that you're working on? Um, and I'd love to, I know that you have a few slides on showing some of your work and showing a, a, a physical memory and how you preserve it, so I, I want to show that. Um, but, like, how do you see this kind of fitting into this larger arc of you being an archivist and wanting to archive memory? And, and I know that you have some thoughts about um, how this what the next steps are and how far away we are from something like being able to recover a brain and what the, at least what those steps may be. So let's, let's revisit this book that's been trapped in this epoxy. Um, if you were charged with getting the story back out of it, right, after it had been sitting around for 100 years and you're given a budget of $10 million to do it, um, how would you guys approach it? Any, any thoughts? Yeah. I, I, I would approach it the same way that they're approaching reading Mm -hmm. in Pompeii right now. Good approach. So you would put that in a micro CT machine exactly. and the, you would be able to literally see into the plastic and get a complicated digital image of the book and then you could go through that and you could extract the letters and you could print a new copy of the book and there you save, that would only really cost you maybe 100,000 bucks or something, maybe even less, maybe 20,000, so you'd pocket the rest. That's a good choice. Okay. <laughs> um, another option would be, you know, you get a really fancy uh, slicing machine that's able to cut that preserved plastic block into very, very tiny slices. There's blades that can cut a piece of paper edge on a thousand times. Um, so if you could do that, then you would be able to easily take a picture of each of the slices and reconstruct the book that way too. Um, so when I think about where the future of technology is going for interrogating brains, I'm looking at connectomics research. So in 1980 or so, don't call me on that one, like uh, we scanned the whole C. elegans connectome, 300 neurons, uh, 10,000 synapses total in the worm. Um, so a small project took them 10 years. Today you could do it in like two months. Um, just last year we scanned the fruit fly connectome, 40,000 neurons, I think 100 million synapses, something like that. Uh, very impressive. Uh, it took them three years, took them a couple of million dollars, but that's cool. Now there's talk of doing an entire mouse brain, okay? A um, hundred million neurons in a mouse brain, an entire third of a milliliter of volume, okay? So that's not quite within striking distance of a human brain, which is a thousand milliliters, but it's, you know, a huge increase. Um, and they think they can do that for um, only $300 million, so, and only in five years. So it's a, a nanoscale, so, so you can see individual uh, vesicles. And down stuff. to the neuron. Yeah, that's right. Not just down to the neuron, down to the individual pieces of the synapses of the neuron. Not, that's correct. Um, so if you extrapolate out, uh, when do we get the, the capability to scan a liter of material at nanoscale resolution? It's like 40 to 50 years, like, like 30 to 50 years. Um, whether that's truly enough to access all the information that's required, who knows. If you really press me on, I generally say it's, it's the work of two generations, about 70 years, to, I think, be able to access information in brains. But, but I think knows? one of the things that we, I mean, we talked about, I think, which is a good example, is the, um, the work that was being done at the, at the San Diego Frozen Zoo and when that started. So, so the San Diego Frozen Zoo started in, uh, in 1972. So we understood enough to preserve DNA in 59. So uh, 13 years later, they were like, yeah, let's preserve DNA from species that are about to go extinct. And uh, I thought that was really quite brave of them to do that because at the time they could have been criticized by saying, we will never have a gigabyte of storage. So you'll never be able to store DNA ever, okay? And even if you did have a gigabyte of storage, it would cost $100 million. And uh, you can't scan the DNA to put it on there anyway because that would be a trillion dollars with the current technology and it'd take 100,000 years. Um, like literally, like that's about what it'd be. Um, and yet, the first human genome was then scanned 40 years later for uh, $3 billion and 10 years. Today, uh, you can scan a genome for about $1,000 and it takes about 24 hours. Um, and DARPA now has a challenge program for the first group that can scan an entire genome for less than a dollar in less than an hour. 
um, which lots of companies are seriously competing for, and they think that they'll have that in a few years. Um, so it seems almost unimaginable to, to think that you could scan a whole liter at nanoscale resolution, but um, there's, there's certainly no physical reason why we wouldn't be able to do that. And can you walk us through a little bit on the, the experiments that uh, you showed me at your lab? You yeah, have some so, slides. So, so the question is, uh, can we uh, get any memory, right? If you're trying to preserve DNA, you know, maybe you could read one base pair at least, uh, just to, as a kind of a proof of concept. And so one thing that we're working on is these model organisms uh, that are these uh, C. elegans. So <clears throat> here is the learning model that we're using, all right? So this is a worm, and it crawls around. It likes to eat its uh, E. coli on its plate. And what we do is we tap the plate. So you know they're in this little Petri dish, and if you go, it like makes an earthquake for them. And if they're naive and they haven't ever felt the earthquake, they freak out. They do this. So here we're going to, you see that it backs away quite a lot. You saw the vibration. You saw that it backed away. Okay. Now here's a naive worm, or sorry, here's a tapped worm. Okay, so this one's used to it. It's been tapped over and over and over again. Let's see what this worm does. So it's moseying along, seeing its stuff, and uh, now we're gonna deliver a tap to it. And it doesn't really care, okay? Let's see what its friends think. So here's two more, and we'll give them a tap. Uh, that was just moving, that wasn't a tap. So we're gonna give them a tap. Okay. Yeah, a little bit of movement, kind of half-hearted, and then it gets right back to eating. So uh, this is a memory. You know, this is something that, that's the most primitive form of memory, a habituation memory, but it is a memory nonetheless. Uh, and the question is, how does the elegans encode this memory? Well, the elegans nervous system is pretty simple. You've got, <clears throat> you have, oh. all right, so you have uh, the brain uh, at the front of the worm, and you've got, like, another brain kind of at the back of the worm, and you've got <laughs> some stuff in its like spine, uh, and this is the ones that we're using in our lab. Um, but, uh, as has been reported in literature before, there's a difference in the ion channels in these synapses along the tail of the worm. So here is reported for tapped worms, and here's the naive worms. You can actually see the difference uh, between those synapses. And so, in theory, you should be able to take these worms and look at them after they've been fixed with preservative chemicals and read out at least the state of whether they are habituated or not uh, directly from examining their nervous system, which you're able to get away with in this case because we understand the nervous system well enough to know what this particular collection of synapses means for the worm. In most cases, you wouldn't be able to do this. So this is like a proof of concept, extracting one bit of memory from uh, a Cialgans worm that we're currently working on. Don't look, at, don't look at that one. Don't look at that one. No, 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 don't look at that one. That one's not a thing. Okay, good. Um, and one of the things you mentioned was uh, spices and the kind of the spices that are effectively are being used for preserving brains. Oh, but I, I apologize. We didn't, we didn't talk too much about that. it. So. All right. So, uh, you know, so again, we got glutaraldehyde. We got formaldehyde. Uh, guess what another word for vanilla is? Uh, vanillic aldehyde. Uh, guess what another word for cinnamon is? Cinnamaldehyde. Uh, another word for cumin cumin aldehyde, right? Uh, a lot of spices just are aldehydes. And the reason they're used, like with the Egyptians, to preserve meat is because they can fix uh, and, and, and partially damage uh, pathogens. Uh, your pathogens are not going to be able to reproduce as well if they've been partially embalmed by preservative chemicals. So, uh, and in fact, things that are aldehydes tend to have a little bit of a fruity smell to them. Um, and glutaraldehyde and formaldehyde are no exception to it. Um, they've got their own unique sort of spice-like type of smell. Now, glutaraldehyde smells, you know, people describe it differently, maybe like rotting pumpkins, maybe like uh, overripe apples. I don't know, what do you think it smells like? Rotting apples. Rotting apples, yeah. Um, and then formaldehyde's got a very, very light, almost airy sort of fruity smell to it. It's very subtle. So that's your spices. And is that what the, sorry, I just came back from Egypt not too long ago. So were the Egyptians using some of these spices? Egyptians take the brain out because all the lipids can uh, oh, right. easily become rancid. Then they dehydrate as much as they can and they throw a bunch of salt and then they use some spices. Um, 
and all of that was trying to get rid of as much water as you can and then try to like make it chemically hostile to anything that wants to grow like mold. Cool. All right, so we're, pretty good. we're getting very quickly to the point where you can ask questions. So we have a microphone somewhere? Yes. So if you do want to ask a question, you need to get his attention. Um, I, have, I have one more and we're going to go into this. I think, you know, there's a, there's a rabbit hole here of like what is, what is the mind and what is a person um, that we need to put a pin in because I know it's going gonna, it's gonna to go down that rabbit hole. Um, but we also want to address it a little bit. I mean, this is not what you are necessarily, we, we don't know the answer to this question because of the work that you are doing, but I think I just want to just start with a little bit of conversation around um, what you think if you were to bring, bring a brain like this back, like what do you get? Yeah. Uh, do we want to do the audience questions? Or we're, we I, we're starting with that one, and then we're gonna, okay. microphone is going to go around. And um, but I, I, I know that there's a lot in this space, and that you know we we don't have the answers to that from the science that you were doing. But I, and so uh, but I want to get ahead of it a little bit and say like what what do we know? What don't we know in this space? All right, so I, I have some slides for this, but maybe we'll save them for audience questions. But briefly, uh, the value of this is, I think, two for it, the, the value of memory preservation. First, um, I think that it's, uh, it's obvious that being able to preserve firsthand wisdom and firsthand experience is useful for humanity in general. Um, I think one of the main problems that we have is with every generation, we get more power and we get more sophisticated technology, but we don't really become wiser because wisdom is basically generated by life experience and you're not born with more life experience than previous generations. You are born with more powerful technology though. And that's not really sustainable. Unless we figure out a way to preserve wisdom, then uh, we're going to have a bad time with uh, increasingly powerful technology. So um, that's totally independent of any notions of consciousness or self or really what's done with an individual that's preserved. And beyond that, uh, I think that you get some very interesting questions about identity, but we'll leave them more towards the audience. <laughs> nice. Uh, all right, we have a microphone. So I had a question of, um, so it seems like it's necessary to preserve the uh, neuron synapse structure, but is, how do you know that it's sufficient? Uh, how do you know that there's not some internal structure that got messed up by the glutaldehydes going into the, the um, inside the, the synapses and messing up the actual, that's where actually the memories are, somewhere inside there, not just in the structure. So this, so, the, so, so this question is like, might there be something more than synapses that matters uh, that is being disrupted by glutaraldehyde in such a way that uh, this preservation is no longer injective. Uh, it's no longer keeping different things different. And so I guess uh, there's ways to go into that, but uh, <clears throat> we'll keep it you know, somewhat short here. Uh, the first is to approach it from this idea of injectivity. It's not a question of, are there things that aren't preserved by glutaraldehyde? It's a question of, if you had two organisms that had different memories, just by one different memory, do you keep them different or not, right? Because uh, if you're preserving a book, for example, like taking a photocopy of every page is sufficient to preserve the book, even though you've abandoned quite a lot. If you're trying to preserve something and you transform it, the question of whether the transformation preserves information is not, does it preserve everything? It's, does it keep different things different? Um, and so uh, we know that you have to change synapses to encode memories. And so uh, we also know that glutaraldehyde is able to preserve synapses in great detail. So it's, it suggests that it preserves the information. Now, beyond that though, of course, uh, there's a question of how easy would it be to actually extract the information? And that does depend on um, exactly what you're preserving, what you're not preserving. You could imagine that every neuron's got some sort of intrinsic like um, factor to it that changes its sensitivity, right, that you're losing with glutaraldehyde, and it could make the problem of extracting information almost impossible to do, right? Certainly, if you encrypt with the rote 13, you do that to these books, obviously it preserves the information. And if you encrypt it with AES-256, it also clearly preserves the information. One of them is much easier to reverse. One of them is basically impossible to reverse. Um, that being said, uh, glutaraldehyde preserves more than just synapses, right? So it actually preserves essentially all of the proteins that are in the brain as well. And so um, if, I, one, of the two, one of the following two things is true. Either 
glutaraldehyde preserves memories in an information theoretic sense. Or there's a mechanism of information storage in the brain that's simultaneously so fragile it's destroyed completely by glutaraldehyde fixation, but it's also so robust it survives deep hypothermic circulatory arrest and seizures and spreading depolarization and concussions and MRI scans and um, you rapidly get to where those aren't overlapping sets anymore. Uh, so so that, that's in general how I think about it. Of course, the details are very important on this and there's many, many details to think about. Um, and we have, we have a question from online, which gives me a, another chance to mention that if you are online, you can submit me questions and they get to me little fairies and unicorns and my little thing. Um, but Laura from, uh, from online is asking, besides brain snapshots, are there ways of preserving um, uh, the brain over time, effectively a video of the brain development? Uh, it's really tough because basically you're limited in resolution. You want to see a synapse, um, you can barely see it with light. You want to resolve it better, you essentially have to dump more energy into it to resolve it better. But you rapidly get to where the energy you have to dump into the system will kill it if it's alive. And so it's, it's almost like there's kind of a fundamental limit for being able to observe a living brain um, without damaging it. That's not even speaking about the fact that your brain is physically quite large. And so uh, something that could barely resolve a synapse on the surface of the brain, if you're trying to reserve, uh, resolve a synapse that's deep inside the brain, you've got to go through a bunch of stuff to get it back. Um, that being said, the most plausible thing that I've ever seen that could do something like that is this idea of DNA self-reporting. So you change the neurons so that they themselves record what they're connected to and what their internal states are and then write it into DNA and then release that DNA into your bloodstream. And then you could sequence this vast amount of messages that your neurons are always reporting and use that to derive all the connections um, in your brain. But that would be a very complicated genetic, genetic engineering project. Biology is like clearly capable of doing it because it's like not particularly more complicated than what the immune system is able to do, for example, in terms of making labels and reporting on things. But um, you, know, you wouldn't be able to do it with a stock organism, I guess. Right. Also, so, yes. it's like totally hypothetical, it doesn't exist, and is like, when I say it's doable, I mean like it would take a generation or two to figure out how to do it, if that. My favorite 70s movie with Christopher Walken, Brainstorm, was really based on this concept. Yeah, which, yeah. but if you wanted a scan Sadly, that could scan nanoscale, it would probably vaporize the brain. Like. Right, so it has the kind of a observational paradox problem. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it's because it's a living system, and it's you know doesn't take too kindly to blasting it with like higher energy photons or whatever you're trying to interrogate right. it with. Nice. Yeah. Would yes. you be able to retrieve wisdom and experience independent of language? So okay, I think about one. This doesn't always work, but one heuristic that I think of when I'm thinking about how preservation works is just neural networks. Okay. Um, so could you preserve a deep learning neural network that Google's made that tells cats apart from dogs? Sure, yeah, if you write down its geometry and you write down the weights of the connections, like, you're not going to understand what it does, but certainly you will have preserved the capability of that neural network to, to dis distinguish these cats and these dogs. Um, now, you could even run this. If you have an appropriate environment, you could just type in all the uh, code for that neural network blindly and run it, and guess what? It can tell dogs and cats apart. And a neural network really has memories of its training data because it can respond to those more strongly than just any old data. And so a, a neural network kind of remembers a familiarity of what it was trained with of, above and beyond an actual ability to recognize uh, cats versus dogs. It remembers like, oh, that's a particular cat that I saw when I was being trained. Um, however, if you were to try and figure out what the memories are, the familiarity memories are, any other way than just running the network, it's almost impossible because the network's kind of a black box. Now, that's a huge active area of research, the ability to unblack box a neural network, look into it and understand what the parts of it mean, independent of actually running it. Um, but I'd say it's still an open question on just how much you can dig into the black box and how much it's almost like required to just run it. Um, certainly the easiest way to get wisdom from a preserved brain would be to simulate the entire thing and just ask the person what it was like to be there. <laughs> Microphone. Hi. Um, what are the primary ethical concerns um, in, in the future that uh, folks like you foresee? Um, maybe even combining some of the things you're talking about with 
AI, um, just imagining um, uh, all the data gathering that would inherently be part of the process. And I'm just wondering if you guys are considering ways of addressing those? Yeah, so the question is, what, what are the ethical concerns when you're preserving information? Um, there's, a, there's a few parts to this, and uh, one person that we work with, um, Andres Sandberg from the Future of Humanity Institute, um, you know, we think about the ethics of this a lot, because it's, it's quite important to get it right. Um, when it comes to doing preservations in the absence of any technology to get meaningful data from it, um, it it's, has similar ethical problems to uh, what you get with embalming in general and brain donation. Um, and so I'd say we've worked that out fairly well. Um, when it comes to safeguarding the information, I would say that the general principle to use is non-coercion and um, you know, what's going to enable human flourishing well. So uh, <clears throat> in the case of like, should you own the data that is what defines your brain, um, it seems to me like if we already have HIPAA laws that say you own your like, blood pressure data, certainly you would own the data that uh, defines your mind, right? Um, I think in addition to that, you probably want safeguards in place for someone who's been preserved that uh, they have control and autonomy over when they would be destroyed, like that the sample would be destroyed if the conditions are bad. Um, that's something that, that people say is very important. I think it's very reasonable. Um, but the general, and you get into a lot of weeds here, of course, it's, it's very complicated, but the general principle is that of autonomy, right? The, the decisions to the extent they can be made by the individual should be made by the individual. Um, so so that, that's a general principle. I don't know if that answers your question or not, but that, that's kind of how I think about it. Do, um, do we, we've been talking about the brain, do we know much about how much memories depend on the rest of the body? Are, are memories stored in the rest of the, uh, the neural network of our body, or, or are we pretty confident that all we need is the brain? So the question is like, what about the body, right? And uh, there's, a, there's a few ways to think about this. First of all, quadriplegic people exist. And when a person becomes quadriplegic, um, their personality isn't erased and their memories aren't erased. So clearly, uh, at least without having a motor connection to the body, um, you start able to access your memories. Um, that being said, like I did my AI thesis on embodied cognition, and I argued in the thesis that you have to have a body to learn how the world works and to, in many ways to even be able to think at all, at least to bootstrap. Um, but it's kind of a moot point, because uh, the same technology that can preserve the brain can preserve the entire body as well. So, you know, practically, the circulatory system extends to every cell in the body, and glutaraldehyde doesn't really discriminate based on whether you're a liver cell or a brain cell. Um, the reason we talk about brain preservation so much is the brain's kind of the hardest thing to preserve. So if you're able to preserve the brain, you're also able to preserve everything else at at least a, a similar level of detail, barring a few stupid things that aren't worth going into. Um, but yeah. <laughs> Um, and before we, I, we're coming up, thanks, um, on our last uh, questions here, and I know you're going to hang out, and you guys work with Robert, yes, in his lab? Yes, I remember seeing you while I was down there. Um, so there's a few other people here in the front row that, um, that you can pepper with questions, as well as Robert, um, at least as to what's going on in the lab. But I'd, I'd love for you to go through the slides that you did bring on this uh, kind of question of, of, of you guys, what wanna, a mind you guys, guys want to talk about consciousness and qualia? You yes. guys actually care about that it's stuff? A good way to, it's a good way to close. Raise, raise yes. your hand if you actually care about qualia at all. Okay. Wow, people care about qualia. Okay, fine, we'll talk about that. So, um, <laughs> you know, all right, so what about all this stuff, right? <clears throat> so I'm going to try a new argument here, okay? Never tried this one before. Uh, I'd love feedback on how it goes, okay? But I think I've more or less figured out the anatomy of these so-called hard problems and why um, they're not particularly philosophically hygienic or, or all that logical, okay? So the way I want to do this is I want to introduce you to one of the coolest things that I've ever seen personally. Um, and then from that, I think you'll at least be able to understand my intuition about these problems. So this pendulum, okay? This is a computer simulation of a pendulum. And if I run this simulation, it's gonna do that. So it just has this nice harmonic motion. It does its thing. Very predictable, very concise equations of motion for this uh, pendulum. So let's say we were to add 
one single extra pendulum to it with a tiny little weight on top of it, and the weight is only a tenth as, uh, as massive as the actual ball, okay? So what do you guys think this one's gonna do? This one's, this one's what we call chaos, so let's see how this one goes. Remember, the, you know, the big one, it approximates the big one, it just kinda does its thing, right? But you'll notice, oh, huh, all right. Okay. <laughs> sure. So uh, this one's not a regular harmonic motion. Uh, this is chaotic motion, which is uh, really cool. Um, I guess when I was young, I sort of thought chaos was uncomputable in some way and that you could never have a computer do it. But that's not true. You know the equation of motion for the pendulum, and they're not more complicated than the other pendulum. Um, it's just you have a different initial state. In fact, the exact same equations did both of these pendulums, right? So it's amazing though, right? Seeing this thing move like this, it's almost kind of like it's got some free will to it, okay? It's like it, it has some sort of whimsy in the way that it moves and you can't predict what it's going to do. It's, it's like quite unpredictable. Um, you're not gonna be able to say, oh, it's gonna end up here at some point in the future. Or maybe it'll end up there, who knows? It kinda just does what it wants to do. And the fact that this exists is incontrovertible. Obviously, it has a whimsical motion to it, clearly. Anybody that's denying that is blind. They can't see what it's doing, okay? So, of course, that exists. But I think there's a common philosophical problem that people make that's very tempting to make that's wrong, all right? And that is saying, look, I observe this amazing thing, this whimsical motion of this pendulum. And so therefore, I now have a privileged understanding of how the universe is organized. The universe must be a type of dumbbell universe, okay? You have the physical world, of course, but this whimsy demands something more. It demands another world where the whimsy lives in that somehow bridges with this world. I don't know how, but it has to be that way, okay? Um, and so if you do this, then I think you've made an error, okay? Because the observation of something that's amazing doesn't automatically tell you how the universe is organized. It could be the case that there's a world where the will of the pendulum lives that isn't part of the physical world, and that's how that works. It could also be the case that the will of the pendulum lives in the physical world um, in a way that you might not really quite understand, but it can be in this world. And so I think in general, this is the recipe for making the so-called hard problems, all right? Uh, <clears throat> first, you observe something that demands an explanation, something amazing, okay? You see red, and you see the color red. It's so vibrant. You feel emotions, okay? You see that there's a thing that's alive, and it's awe-inspiring. And you say, well, because I've observed this awe-inspiring awesome thing, I know how the world works. I know there's a special, the physics can't contain it. There's a special other world where the awesomeness lives, okay? And you know, you can be humble and say that you don't know how that actually connects. Uh, and so that's the question, right? But now you've, by definition, made your hard problem. You've said that there's a thing that exists that physics can't explain. And so then the corollary of that is, even if you explain everything in terms of physics, you're still missing something. What about the awesomeness, okay? And it's unwarranted and it's not logical to posit that there's another world, this kind of platonic world where these things live. Whether it's qualia, whether it's the vital force, whether it's free will, you could even make a hard problem of arithmetic. You see that a calculator, when you press two buttons, two and two, and you get four. Well, sure, you could say, look, what, I understand that the transistors work this way, but how does it become addition, right? What is it that makes the calculator do addition? We all know calculators can do addition, but it feels like if you just explain how transistors work and how LCD screens work, that nevertheless, you haven't described the bridging laws for this other type of platonic world where the addition is, is real. Um, and then the nasty thing about it is I think our language is very permissive for us to do this automatically, essentially. Even saying something like I is already, you've already lost, you've already posited that there's a dual world where the eyes live. Um, and so it's quite insidious. You can make this mistake without even realizing that you're making this mistake. And then it traps you because 
anybody saying, well, but you can explain it like this with physics, well, you say, well, are you saying that this awesomeness isn't real? Because obviously it's real, I've observed it. Um, so I, I think this is how you do this. I think you, I think you make hard problems like this and basically, if you observe emotions or you observe that there's a self that's kind of monitoring yourself, like, of course that's real. Like, it's insane to say that that's not real. But it doesn't mean that you now know how the universe is organized. It doesn't mean there's a separate world where that stuff lives. Why is it that the redness of red has to live in its own separate world of qualia that's divorced from how light works? Why can't the redness of red live in this world? At least every time we've done this in the past, we've been wrong, okay? People saw that things were alive, and so they said, there must be some vital force above and beyond mere chemistry and physics that makes them be alive, that's lost when they die. And who knows how it works, but obviously it's real just from our common experience. And then we found that life is just incredibly complicated chemistry, and it feels almost like you're cheating or you're destroying this precious world where the life was, but the life wasn't ever there in the first place. Life was always in this world. Um, so, so that's in general how I think about it, but I'd love to hear what your thoughts are. Well, we are actually going to wrap up. Uh, Great. Uh, I don't need to hear what your thoughts are. And yeah. we will leave that for, um, for questions after. Um, and I want to give you uh, hey, hey, a hey, long hey. now challenge. It's, going. A, it's, it's a timeout. That means that this is right. <laughs> and, uh, thank you. If you enjoyed this talk, check out previous episodes with Neil Stevenson, Stuart Brand, Kim Stanley Robinson, and many more. Find them on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen. The Long Now Foundation is a member-supported nonprofit dedicated to fostering long-term thinking and responsibility. Long Now members make everything we do possible. Learn more at longnow.org.